I've been reminded during this Advent season leading up to Christmas that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those that agree with me and are right. <laughs> There's are those that are, agree with my wife and are wrong. She's not here this service, so I can say that. I grew up watching the movie A Christmas Story, and I happen to think that it's a brilliant film. Not everybody agrees with me. There's one scene, though, in this movie that just makes me laugh every time I see it. Check it out. Oh, preparing to go to school was like getting ready for extended deep sea diving. kid brother looked like a tick about the pop. What? What is it? What is it? Oh. What is it? I can't put my arms out. Well, put your arms down when you get to school. like that at some point in time. I, I just, I can't get up. I'm, I'm too bundled up. I've got too much going on. I think if we're honest, we all come to that place at some point in our life where we go, man, this life feels cumbersome. There's a lot of weight to carry. There's a lot of things going on. And sometimes they just, they wrap us up in such a way that we can't get up. Uh, um, last year, I decided to read a book that my English teacher required that I read, um, and I never did. <laughs> it's called The Grapes of Wrath, if you heard of it. Yeah. Written by John, Stein, John Steinbeck in 1939. It's about a family that lives in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowls, and they decide to, to move and to leave because their land is depleted and their lives are depleted. And the book is about their journey on the way to California. And they have this hope that when they get to California, it's going to be um, greener pastures. It's going to be a better life. There's, there's signs along the way in the gas stations. And there's this hope that when they get to that place, eventually they'll be able to get up. Eventually they'll be able to live. Eventually, they'll find some sort of satisfaction, some sort of pleasure, some sort of, of freedom. And if you've read the book, what you know is that when they get there, it's like chasing the wind. It's an elusive mist that they try to grab, and they wind up feeling just as empty as when they'd left. I got to the end of the book, and I thought, I, I think this book is so popular because it's well-written, number one, but it's the human story in a lot of ways, isn't it? We leave one place that doesn't satisfy, 
in order to go to greener pastures and quiet waters, and it ends up just leaving us wanting. A few weeks ago, uh, I had a friend who recommended a book to me. It's entitled The Coddling of the American Mind, but what you may not be able to read is the subtitle, and here's what the subtitle is. It's written just this year. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. How good intentions, but bad ideas, are setting up an entire generation for failure. And here's what the authors sort of put their finger on. It doesn't matter how good our intentions are if our ideas are bad. It doesn't matter how good our heart is if we're walking down the wrong path. Like, we can have the best intentions of the, in the world, but if our actions don't align with reality, we can find ourselves in a place that's pretty painful and pretty broken and in want, can't we? When we thought we were leaving a place to go to some place that was better, we find ourselves lying on the ground saying, I can't get up. Ralphie, Ralphie, I can't get up. Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, reality is what we run into when we find out we're wrong. That's, that's true, isn't it? When we, when we find out we're wrong, that can be a fairly painful discovery, can't it? When I find out that the way that I'm approaching the relationship just isn't going to get me what I want, that's a painful discovery. When I find out the way that I'm pacifying my pain actually leads to addiction, that's a painful discovery. When I find out that the job, even though I got it, doesn't fulfill that longing in my soul, that's a painful discovery, isn't it? Did you know there's an entire book in the scriptures about this idea? It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon calls it a, a chasing after the wind. And I think some of us, we find ourselves there this morning. We've, we've gone down some different pathways and they've led to dead ends. We've left the proverbial dust bowl, but we've ended up in a place where we go, I'm not exactly sure how I got here and I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. It's interesting because the season of Christmas speaks into this profound truth that every human soul longs for. If you have your Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 4. It's where we've been camping out over the last few weeks in our Advent series that we're calling Filling Up Christmas. We all have a tendency to fill up Christmas. The question is, are the things that we fill Christmas with leaving us full or leaving us empty? And so we've been journeying with the Apostle Paul as he writes to this church at Galatia. And listen to what he says. If you've been with us, this should sound sort of familiar. Here's what he says. But when the fullness of time had come, just stop there. If you were here a few weeks ago, what you maybe remember is that God gives a promise that he's going to send a Messiah, and then he waits a few thousand years in order to deliver. There was a lot of time that was unfulfilled before there was time that was full. And we said that Advent is really about waiting. It's about entering into a season where we, where we discipline our hearts to wait well. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, and remember, we said that God came as a child to dwell, that we might become children of God. 
Paul goes on, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. If you were here last week, you might remember that we said God came to dwell among us so that He would ultimately dwell, anyone? Within us, yes! That's somebody. <laughs> I mean, as a pastor, you hear everyone knows, everybody remembers. And then he says this, this will be the final message in our series, Filling Up Christmas. He says, so, so. It's his like, therefore statement, because all of this is true. You are no longer a slave, but a son, a son or a daughter. And if you're a son or a daughter, then you are an heir through Jesus. It's really interesting because Paul is a sort of um, savant when it comes to freedom. He writes about it more than any other New Testament author. And I think that Galatians is sort of his, his magnum opus on freedom. He, he mentions it 10 times in this little short letter alone, more times than he mentions it in any other letter. And I think if we were to sort of distill this into one succinct statement, we might say something like this, that the incarnation frees us from incarceration. The incarnation frees us from incarceration, or, or we might say it like this because it was in my notes before I thought of that, that Jesus came under the system of the law, that we might walk in the freedom of love. Jesus came under the system of the law that we might walk freely in love. What's the incarnation ultimately about? Well, Paul says, it's so that you can know that you're no longer a slave, but that you are a son. My mind almost immediately went back to June 23rd of 2018, this year. When the nation, not only our nation, but the nations, all focused on 13 boys stuck in a cave in Thailand. Do you remember this? Do you remember watching on, tuning in almost every day, knowing that these 13 boys, a soccer team that had gone on this adventure, had been pinned in a cave three and a half miles back inside? Of, I didn't really get it. I had to read up on it again just to be reminded of it. Do you remember wondering how in the world that actually happened? Three and a half miles from freedom. And then Elon Musk got involved. Remember this? Tried to develop some sort of submarine. And eventually, eventually, two weeks later, two weeks later, 13 boys rescued. I don't know if you remember that feeling of going, no way. They got every single one of them out. And it was as though the collective cheer of all the nations joined in and went, yes, we did it. I think Christmas is due for a collective cheer. Yes, he's done it. He's rescued us. And it wasn't just three and a half miles back in a little cave um, without food and running out of air. It's not just that that he's rescued us. He's rescued us from the cosmic enemies of sin and death. And he has freed us to walk in 
newness of life, the Apostle Paul will say. It's really interesting. Many of us know that Jesus has come and we know that he's brought freedom, but we live like Ralphie's brother on the ground, don't we? And I wonder if maybe just a a re-examining of what Paul means when he talks about, when he says, we've been set free, what does he mean? Free from what? And free for what? Those are really good questions. I'm glad you asked them. Because it turns out I've got a little something prepared for that. So look at free from what and free for what. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. Verse 3 is up on the screen. We'll get there in just a moment. He says this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from the slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here's the picture that Paul's painting. Paul's painting the the picture of somebody who's the heir to royalty, that has everything at their fingertips, but isn't of an age where they can actually enjoy that because their parents have some wisdom, right? You're not allowed to touch that until a certain time. It's all yours. It's all yours. But you can't enjoy all the benefits of it until you hit a certain age. And what the Apostle Paul says is that's exactly what the law was like. It was a tutor. It was intended to teach us and to lead us to the point where eventually we'd be able to enjoy the freedom that we would be brought. Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Jump down to verse 8, because Paul's going to continue this thought. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not God's. But now, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. And so here's what Paul's doing. He starts off by talking about the Old Testament law, saying it was good, but it wasn't the end. It was good, but it was a tutor. But then, then he says, okay, that type of thinking has enslaved you to those who by nature are not what? Gods. He's going somewhere along the line. This didn't become neutral. It became evil. It became even like demonic. Paul says. Yeah, the Old Testament law was revealed by God and it was good. But Paul's point is that when we use the law for that which it wasn't intended for, it actually turns on us and becomes like a pagan religion. Like we're doing some sort of incantation, some sort of magic, some sort of way to try to get God to do what we want. See, the Old Testament law was always intended to help us identify sin. It wasn't intended to help us prevent it. It's interesting because J.C. Ryle, the um, great pastor, said it like this. He said, a painting of a fire cannot warm. A painted banquet cannot satisfy. And a formal religion cannot bring peace to the soul. 
I believe, will you look up at me for just a moment? I believe that the greatest danger to our freedom of life with God is not atheism, and it's not secularism, it's religion. It's religion. And that's what Paul's saying. And what his anthem is all throughout Galatians is that we have freedom from legalism. And legalism, if you want a definition of it, legalism is simply the belief that I can earn favor with God based on my behavior. And we're hardwired for it. We are hardwired for it. And if you've been here um, every single Sunday for the last umpteen years, can you just take us, let's just all of us take a step back and go, we might be in danger of this. Because it's just so normal. It's such the pattern of the world that we live in. I read an article from the New York Times this week that said that depression rates amongst high schoolers are higher than they've ever been. Higher than they've ever been. And there's some research that they started to do to ask the question, why? Like, what's going on? Why have we seen since 2010 this massive spike, massive spike in depression amongst high school students? And here's what the experts, the researchers said. They said more high school students are struggling with depression than ever before, but the question is why? For many of these young people, the biggest single stressor is that they never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough and now I can stop. No, there's always one more activity, one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get into the top college. Kids have this sense that they're not measuring up. The pressure's relentless and it's getting worse. And I went, I read that and went, well, that sounds like a lot of what you hear in church sometimes. It's never enough. Never adds up. More, 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 then God will be okay with you. Which, friends, is, by definition, legalism. It's what it is. God will be okay with me when. God will be okay with me if. And what Paul wants to do is say, there will be no freedom where there is legalism. And what Jesus did is he steps into the system of the law that we might be free to walk in love. I don't know if you caught this, but he says, listen, you've been turning back to celebrating like special days, to observing special days and months and seasons and years. Has, is anybody thinking to themselves what I'm thinking to themselves? Isn't that what we're doing here? Isn't that what we're going to do tomorrow? We're going to observe a day? Well, um, if you're thinking that, let me put your mind at ease. Because what Paul is talking about is maybe worshiping on a certain day of the week and thinking, well, now, now I'm good. Celebrating a certain feast and going, well, now God's happy. What he's talking about is not celebrating, but a transaction, right? If I do this, then God's okay. Then God's like, well, that Paulson guy was a total tool. But now, now that he celebrated Christmas, it's good. It's good. Um, so lean in for a moment. Lean in for a moment. Because the lie of legalism always tells us there's just a little bit more to do until God's okay. Right? It's that, it's that famous Rockefeller quote, how much money will be enough? And he responds, just a little bit more. God, when will we, we be okay with you? Just a little bit more. 
just a little bit more. Lean in. There is nothing left for you to earn from God. Nothing. Not one thing. If you're going, well, Paulson, prove it to me gladly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with, say with me, church, every spiritual blessing. Now, every, that's a lot. How many is left outside of every? Nothing. Nothing. There is nothing left to earn from God. Quiet time, Bible reading, prayer, acts of justice, caring for the poor, giving to the food bank, signing up to serve for Christmas Eve services, having experiences with God in worship. Those are all wonderful. Those are great. But God's not keeping score, you guys. He is not keeping score any longer. No, no, no. Pagan religions seek to appease God by the things that they do. Followers of Jesus know that as Paul says, they are known by God and they know God. So let me just drill down. If, if that's true, if we're free from having to earn anything from God because he's freely given it all, let me just tell you two things that are beautiful and true of your life right now. If there's nothing left to earn, God can freely enter. He can freely enter. He can enter the mess. He can enter the pain. See, what religion wants to tell us is if we get ourselves together enough, then God will come and then God will enter. Religion wants to tell us, well, if we get pretty enough and sort of put on our Sunday best, then, then we meet with God. And what Christmas tells us and what Jesus declares is, I love the manger, the dirt, the stable, the imperfect. I'm not coming to the palace. I'm coming to the cave in your life and in mine. If there's nothing left to earn, I can free, God can freely enter. And if there's nothing left to earn, here's the second thing, we can stop striving and start enjoying. We can start, stop striving and start enjoying. I don't know about you guys. I, I love this picture of the prodigal son who goes away and comes home. And his dad's not like, all right, here's the hoops you got to jump through. If we're going to be okay, here's what you've got to do. No, 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 no. He Christmases him. He runs and meets him on the road, right? Pulls up his coat, runs and meets him, wraps him in his coat, put, puts a ring on his finger and says, come on, come on. Let's, let's dance. Let's sing. Let's party. It's no coincidence that the kingdom of God is described as a feast, as a celebration, as a party. And what I'd love for you to hear this morning is that Jesus invites us to hear the music of grace, to let our hair down, to rest in his love, and to dance. Even if things around us feel like they're a little bit of a mess. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you know, we're, we're free from legalism, which is such a great Christmas reminder for churchy people like me. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not the only thing that he says we're free from. Here, here's where he goes on. Verse 15, sorry, 13 of chapter 5. So if you're following along in your Bible, which I hope you are, just flip over one chapter, chapter 5, verse 13. He's unpacked this freedom from legalism to think that we're right with God based on what we do. And then he goes, well, there's another side to this coin too. 
For you were called to freedom, he says. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. So what is Paul assuming we're thinking? He's assuming we're thinking, well, if I'm free, well, live and let live. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Let's just live it up. Let's just feed our every natural desire that we have. If, if I'm free, then I should be able to do whatever the heck I want. It's a similar thing to what he assumes that we're going to be thinking if we read through the book of Romans where he talks about how good grace is. And then he says in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin? Are we to just use our freedom to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Okay, so here's what I want to point out and then we'll move forward. If our teaching about God's grace and mercy and the freedom we have in him doesn't lead us to at least think, well, I must be able to do whatever I want. It's not strong enough. That's what Paul assumes we'd think. We would, he assumes that our minds would go to, well then, I should be able to do whatever I want. If we don't have a strong enough view of grace, we'll never get there. But he wants to, because he believes that that's where we'll go, he steers us back just a little bit and says, no, no, no. You're not supposed to use your freedom for your sake alone. You're supposed to use it in order to serve and love. Here's, here's a, let me rewind a second. The problem with doing whatever the heck we want is that that doesn't actually bring us freedom, right? That, that leaves us like Ralphie's brother on the snow, I can't get up. <laughs> it's really interesting. If you were to go back and read sort of the ancients on what it is that brings the human soul freedom, here's the way that Plato would have described it. See, Plato in his work, The Republic, he described freedom as the rule of reason over the soul unimpeded by desire. So, so here's what he's suggesting. That real freedom is the ability to step back enough from our natural desires to say, will this lead me to life? Will this lead me to life? His claim was that real freedom was the ability to say no to some of the desires that we have because they are not best. See, he, he surmised this by saying, an individual is free in his or her reason, when his or her reasoning rules their soul in line with the good. But something happened in the 17th, 18th century during the Enlightenment. We started to redefine freedom. Freedom didn't become the ability to choose what's best and the ability to choose what's good. Freedom def was defined then as being free from anything that was oppressive that would tell me what I had to do in certain situations. So, if the church tells me what to do, that's not real true freedom. Regardless of whether or not it's good and regardless of whether or not it's best. If a government tells me what to do, it's real, not real true freedom. See, the only problem with that is we all know that freedom requires limits. So the Sean Mendes song, there's nothing holding me back, right? We, that's our anthem of freedom in, the, in these days. But we all know that's not true. For other kids to be free on the playground at Runyon, Reed Paulson cannot be allowed to punch everybody in the face. <laughs> it's a tough lesson to learn for a little five-year-old. 
For us to be free people, those who abuse others need to be locked up. For us to be free on the road, we need people who have a propensity to drink and drive not to have a driver's license. For us to be free, we need age restrictions on some activities and limits on things, don't we? So Paul says this, we have freedom from legalism, but also we have freedom from what I'll call licentiousness. That's sort of a big word that just means our natural desires. We have freedom from the need to follow every desire and every whim. We have freedom to step back and ask the question, is this good? Is this good? So I had a pastor friend describe it like this, and I'm going to steal his verbiage because I think it's great. He says this, freedom is the ability to choose our deepest desire rather than our strongest desire. To choose our deepest desire rather than our strongest desire. My strongest desire are our holiday treats. I'm going to be honest with you. My deepest desire is my health. And so I'm going to start pursuing that on January 2nd. <laughs> my strongest desire sometimes are kids that like me. My deepest desire are kids who will grow up to be adults, productive adults in the world, and walk in joy. My strongest desire is often self-protection. My deepest desire is intimacy. My strongest desire can be lust. My deepest desire is love. Man, I don't know about you, but there are times when my strongest desire can be bitterness. I want to hold on to this thing. I want to hold it over their head. Man, my deepest desire, when it really comes down to it, is forgiveness, is the kingdom, is the way of Jesus. And we could probably go around the room and, start and go, yeah, this is my deepest desire, um, but this is often my strongest desire. And Jesus says, I want to free you from the ability to have to follow down a road that will eventually lead you to brokenness. I love the way Rich Mullins put it in a song. He said, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. This is what Paul's talking about. The ability not just to fight for something we ultimately don't want, but to open our hearts and our minds and our lives to Jesus. Here's the way Paul will say it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, this is the freedom for. So we have freedom from legalism, freedom from licentiousness, or the, to just follow every whim and every desire. And we have freedom for Here's the way he says it. We were therefore buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, say this with me, church, walk in newness of life. Did you know that you have freedom because of Christmas, because of the gift of the incarnation, freedom from incarceration, we have freedom to live. We have freedom to live. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6. That's what this whole chapter is all about. If you want to spend some time there over this next week, I would encourage you to do so. Because he wants to unpack for us, how do we actually do that? Well, how do we actually live? Because so much of the time we end up leaving Oklahoma to try to chase green pastures and still waters and we don't find them. 
And so much of the time we end up, I can't put my arms down. I'm enslaved to my every desire. This addiction has its claws in me. This anger I can't seem to let go of. This lust is just kicking right now, right? So how do we do that? How do we really live? And here's what Paul writes. He says, we know that our old self, that that self that just wanted to feed every natural desire, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Start, stop there. What Paul's going to say in verse 18, if you just follow down just a little bit, he says, no, no, no. We've been set free from sin and we've become slaves to righteousness. Paul says, if you want to walk in newness of life, what you've got to recognize, is that ultimately every life has a master. Every life has something over it. And it may be our desires. It may be our addictions. But what Paul wants to say is, no, 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 no. no. Make Jesus, who's Lord of all creation, your master. Surrender. That's what he says the first step is. Surrender. Jump down to verse 11. He says, and consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to Christ. What you think about in your relation to your desires actually determines the way that you live. So Paul says, remind yourself, I don't need to follow that. I don't need to go there. Like, preach the gospel to yourself. I'm making this decision, but this, I'm not bound to it. Consider, think about yourselves as dead to sin, and alive to Christ. Know that it's true. See, freedom was purchased by Jesus, but it must be embraced by us. It's purchased by Jesus, but it must be embraced by us. And Paul says, well, and here's how you do it, verse 12. Here's how you do it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself as me your members or your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members, your body to God as instruments for righteousness. See, we actualize, and will you lean in for just a moment here? Because I think sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes we think that freedom just happens in our head. If I believe this, then I'll be free. There's certainly a portion of that that's true. We need to consider or reckon ourselves dead to sin. This doesn't bind me anymore. But then we need to do something with our bodies too. Because your body is a key player in your spiritual formation. Paul says don't present the, your body anymore to sin. We must actualize our freedom through spirit-empowered practice. See, I can want to be free from anger... But if I don't start training myself to respond well when I don't get my way, I never will be. I can want it all day long. But if I don't train for it, I'll never actualize it. I can want to be free from lust, but if I don't put some parameters around what I view with my eyes, I will continue to walk in bondage. See, deciding to renew my mind through Scripture, spending time in prayer, slowing down, practicing Sabbath, 
fasting. These are all ways we present the members of our body to Jesus to say, have your way. It doesn't earn us anything from God, but it positions us to receive the grace that he's pouring out. Does that make sense? Makes sense. So what we do with our body actually matters. This is why I think Celebrate Recovery is so important. We have it every Tuesday night, 6.30, except for Christmas. But every Tuesday night, you'll be here. You will be here on Christmas. Because this matters. Because this matters. And here's the last thing, and we'll close with this. You were called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love to serve one another. Man, you have freedom. And then Paul goes on to say, and, and when you serve, you actually fulfill the, and, and love, you actually fulfill the entire law. We have freedom to love. We have freedom to love. And let me just point out, we actually do need to be free from both legalism and licentiousness in order to have the capacity to love. We really do. Because if we're still under legalism, we're too concerned with being right in order to love. Have you ever been around people like this? They were so concerned with whether or not they were right and whether or not they were right with God that they were actually confined from the ability to do the very thing which Jesus said would fulfill the entire law. They were walking on eggshells. I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if, we're, if God's okay with this. I'm not sure if we're going to add up. I'm not sure if we're going to be okay. Yeah, we actually do need to be free from legalism in order to love. But we also need to be free from licentiousness because if we're too concerned with ourselves, our own satisfaction, our own pleasure, feeding our own every desires, we will be unable to really truly see the people around us. So when Paul writes about this, he says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Christmas is certainly about, Jesus' coming is certainly about freedom, but it's about freedom because it's about love. And so he'll say, and I'll end with this, he'll say in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, free from legalism, Nothing left to earn from God. Nothing. He's given it all to you in Jesus. Stand firm. Stand firm from licentiousness. You don't need to follow your every desire. You've actually been freed to choose your deepest desire, not your strongest one. Stand firm. Live. Surrender to the master that wants to lead you in to freedom. Present your body to him because it's a key player in your spiritual formation. And friends, friends, you are free. You are free because of those things to really, truly, genuinely love the people around you. Eugene Peterson said it like this, a space has been cleared in the thick forest and brambles of necessity from which we can freely respond to God, freely grow in the image of God, freely develop in relationships of forgiveness, having provided the space, we are free to take a stand there. Amen. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother.
And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy, a grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name, because Christ is the Lord. Praise his name forever, his power and glory evermore proclaim. Oh yeah, you may have been wondering what this is. I think it's one of the best gifts you're going to get this Christmas. Um, last uh, few years ago, 2015, my friend Neil um, came up to me after a sermon that I preached entitled Chain Shall He Break. And he gave me um, a little piece of a chain. And it sat on the back of my bookshelf right behind my desk for the last three years. And I wanted to give one to you. Did you get one when you walked in? If you didn't, you can grab one on your way out. You'd be surprised how long it takes to make 700 chains like this. <clears throat> so please, take one. Darwin will be happy that you did. <laughs> but I want to give you just a few minutes to just hold that. To think about the Messiah stepping into this world and in doing so, breaking the chains. The reality is, though, a lot of us live still confined and so I just want to give you a few moments today to just hold that chain and to ask one simple question of God. Jesus, what chain in my life do you want to break during this Christmas season? Why don't you take a few minutes? I'm just going to play some music and let you think about that. In the chaos of this season, would you receive this as just a gift? to slow down and to ask God what he might want to do in your life.